Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me okay? My name's Landon. Welcome. Online viewers, welcome to you. So this evening, we're going to be covering uh, the second book of Timothy. We're picking off from up where we were last week. So this book was written by Paul from a Roman prison to Timothy, which is someone who he considers to be his spiritual son. It's four chapters long, though very powerful. You can break it down into about two different sections. One, Paul is encouraging Timothy to remain strong in his faith and to finish strong in the work that Christ has started in him. And he goes on to show him just how he can do that. In the section, second section, we'll find that he addresses the corrupt teaching that's going on in the Church of Ephesus, which was most likely the same problem that he was experiencing when he wrote First Timothy. So, in Paul's past letters, there's always been this sense of hope or expectation that he was going to get released from prison. And in this letter, it's a completely different tone. This time, he knows that the end is near, and it's time to be with Christ, with Christ to come. And unfortunately, his death will be inevitable. inevitable. So, when you read this, you really need to read it with a sense of urgency that you would have if you were in your final hours writing to your child and maybe your grandchild. You would want to first let them know how much you love them and care for them. You would want to tell them how proud you are of them. But you'd also want to leave, leave them with one last bit of knowledge, one last bit of wisdom. I mean, no longer will you be around. So you want to make sure that they're going to be able to stand on their own two feet. And finally, you'd want to see them one last time. And so it helps also, when you review this book, to read it in the same manner in which you would write to your son. Now, this was written somewhere around the year 68 A.D., but let's just step back for a moment to the year 64 A.D. So there's this emperor, Emperor Nero. This guy, he is a complete psychopath. He's as crazy as they come. I mean, this guy killed his own mother, considered to be one of the most heinous crimes that you commit, you can commit in Rome. He married at least two different wives and killed them both, one pregnant when he kicked them to death. He castrated a young slave boy, dressed him in a wedding veil, and prayed him through the streets and married him. This is a choice that he did not choose for himself. By the age of 20, this boy will have committed suicide. Now, at this time period, the Christian population is about 0.01, So if you could imagine, there are very few Christians in Rome. And... We don't really have this great reputation. We're sort of outcasts because we certainly don't worship Nero. We don't idolize sex and money. We don't participate in all the celebrations and the things that they, they do. And to make matters worse, a fire breaks out in Rome. It's just outside the sports arena next to the, uh, the emperor in the garden. 
just a building or two at first, but then the nice winds come in, and it violently spreads fire throughout the city. It burns for six days and seven nights. Two-thirds of the city is lost, burnt to ashes. A lot of people suffer. A lot of people without homes, food, shelter. But meanwhile, this psychopath, this Emperor Nero, is singing in the streets without any remorse over what's going on. But rather instead, he revealed his plan to expand his palace and expand the palace garden. The Senate started to realize, hey, you know what? Maybe this is a little bit too convenient for him that this fire happened with these new revealed plans. So they started to scrutinize him. Well, back into a corner, what did he do but blame the dreaded Christians? And it was easy for the Romans to succumb to this as they just went through all this suffering and they needed to latch the blame on the summons. So then, he drags us in. He questions us. He twists and turns our words. And the persecutions begin. Some of us were crucified. Others, they wrapped us in the skins of beasts and set wild dogs on us to tear us to pieces. We were made a spectacle of in the sports arena that set lions loose on us to be devoured in front of hundreds of thousands. And by nightfall, they would light the streets in the palace gardens Christians by dipping them in tar and setting them on fire no matter dead or alive. Can you guys imagine that? Can you imagine living in that? So it's dark times and most Christians have been driven from the city. So fast forwarding now, either 68 AD, here we are, Paul is sitting in this dark, dingy dungeon riding from prison to his dear son Timothy. We'll pick up now last week where we left off verse 15. As you know, everyone from the province of Asia has deserted you, even for jealous and homogenous. So he's given two examples here of men of what sounds like many who are abandoning him. But what are they abandoning well, one reason they might abandon Paul is it's been a gruesome four years. Many Christians have either left their faith or gone into a sort of hiding and no longer preaching the gospel. Another reason that they could be abandoning is his reputation as a follower of Christ. He's probably one of the most well-known Christians there are. I mean, this guy traveled 10,000 miles by foot throughout his ministry. So it's easy to see Guilty by association, right? I mean, you get caught talking to this guy, you might as well wave a, might as well wave a flag to the city saying, I'm a Christian, persecute me. And so the third reason, and probably most likely reason for Paul's abandonment, is his suffering. People don't understand why he's in prison. He's getting out of prison a lot. And they don't understand how this relates to Christ. But he knows, he knows why he's there. He knows that his suffering... Is it for the, the work that Christ is setting to do? Imagine if Pastor Chris back here was in and out of prison all the time. And so you bring your family in to see your awesome pastor, right? And they say, well, where's the Pastor Chris at? Well, funny story, he's in prison. 
Again, uh, again, does that happen a lot? Can you imagine? Let's face it, there would be some judgment there, right? So it's very easy to see why some people might be questioning Paul being in prison all the time. But Paul's no dummy. He knows people begin to judge him. He sees it as honorable. He's not ashamed. Let's go back to last week when we talked about verse 11 and 12. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed. Notice he said whom, not what. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Just think about this for a minute. Paul had everything. He had a position of high authority. He was very wealthy, very respected in his community. And now here we find him with nothing in a dark, dingy prison about to be executed. Now you tell me, what else would cause a man to give all of that up except to say that he truly did encounter the risen Christ and believe that he was the Son of God? Isn't there power and inspiration in his, in his story? Beautiful. Moving on now, in verse 16 through 18, sorry, um, yeah, through 16 through 18, there's an example of one man who, um, boy, got a mess here. Moving on, verses 16 through 18, Paul gives an example of one man who has remained faithful and has not abandoned him. May the Lord show special kindness to Onesiphorus and his family because he often visited and encouraged me. He was never ashamed of me because I was in chains. When he came to Rome, he searched everywhere until he found me. May the Lord show him special kindness on the day Christ returns. As you know very well how helpful he was in Jesus. So this is crazy in dark times now. Right? But here's this guy. He's just walking about Rome. And he's saying, hey. I'm looking for my buddy Paul. Have you seen Paul? Man, I can't find him. Can you imagine the the risk that he's taking by doing that? Can you imagine if somebody makes that connection to him in Christ? I think we all know too well, right? Crucified, burned alive. So here's the thing. This guy showed tremendous faith out there. And he knew with certainty that Christ was his deliverance. So he walks about and he looks for Rome for, for Paul without fear. We finish up here now in chapter 1. Paul's been very encouraging to Timothy that he needs to stay strong and remain in faith and finish strong in the work that Christ has started in him.
chapter 2, verse 1. I have to say, this is the most important verse that I would want to give to my child if I was writing a letter to her. Timothy, my dear son, be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. So here's this word grace. This is probably one of the hardest concepts to really get in the Bible. But it's also one of the most important concepts for you to get. Our entire Christian experience is based on the grace of God. Christ said, without me you can do nothing. We struggle to understand this word grace. There's a few reasons why. The first thing you have to understand about God's grace is who we are as humans. See, what's happened is we've raised ourselves up in this world where we define good on our own. Instead of defining good by what God's standards are. We falsely compare our sins to the sins of others. We say things like, I pay my bills, I go to work, I pray, I read my Bible. I'm good, right? I mean, at least I don't steal or commit murder. But because we've defined ourselves as this good, we're not even seeking God's grace. We're not even acknowledging that we need it every minute of every single day. I assure you, we all desperately need it. Let's review some scripture here on the state of our so-called good. Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us who have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds like filthy garments, all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So what we perceive as righteous, God sees differently. Even our best work falls short. Even our best work is like a filthy garment. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Okay, so this one sounds like you can get it right some of the time. But still we fall short, right? 1 John 1.8 If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So I hope you're getting the picture here. Without God's grace, we're not good. The only thing good in us is when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then we can claim that good. We get to share in His good and His righteousness. He fills in all the gaps where we fail as humans. Now on the flip side of this, some of us go the other way. We say we do not deserve God's grace. We judge this by our human view of good. So rather than letting Him be the true judge, we make the call on his behalf. We reject him. We reject his grace because we don't think we deserve it. I mean, 
wondering why, despite my sins, would God love me so much to see his son to die for me on the cross? Why, despite my mistakes every day, would he continue to bless me? It's hard for us to believe how somebody could love us that much. But again, we define love in our own way, and not the way God defines it. We have this human view of love, and it's a very unconditional thing. I love you because. I love you unless. I love you until. You're not perfect. You're not good. But, when you get saved, and God resides in you, and that's where the good is. That's where the power comes from. You're not going to be a perfect father. You're going to make mistakes every day. But where you fail, he succeeds. You're not going to be a perfect mother. You're going to have a lot of time to struggle. You might even try it now. But God is a perfect mother. He fills in all the gaps. Where you're not enough, he is enough. God's grace is enough. We're not perfect neighbors. We're not perfect employees. But God is. And we have to trust in Him. There's a lot of power. A lot of power to be had in knowing that He is making right all our wrongs. He completes us. He finishes the job. And for all eternity. For all time. Eternity, though. That's, that's another word that we struggle with, isn't it? It's hard to get a grasp on what eternity is. It also creates failures to understand grace. So we get saved. We know. We recognize that we're saved by Jesus' grace. We're, we're saved by His work on the cross. But then all of a sudden, this mistake comes along. And we're like, oh, man. So what are we going to do? Call up Pastor Chris and say, look, man, I fell into some mud. This whole righteous uh, salvation thing, it's, it's a mess. I'm going to have to take another dip. Well, let me save you a phone call. Let's review 1 Peter, verse 18 of chapter 3. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. You guys get that? Christ suffered for our sins once all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. But Jesus isn't up there right now going, oh man, these guys have had made a mess of this salvation. I better head down there and die for them. What a bunch of idiots. No. He died once. That's all he needed to die. He took all of our sins, the weight of all of our sins, and he died so we'd be forgiven so we can be brought safely home to our Lord. Our forgiveness is eternal, guys. Verse 2, we continue to learn how we can finish strong. We have heard and we teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. 
This is actually a really awesome verse. It's the passing down of the assignment that Christ gives to his disciples. Let's go ahead and read about that. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Let's see what Jesus says. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of age. So what's a disciple? It's a student. So Jesus collected these students. He taught them all that was required, all that they needed to know. And he's saying, I am passing on the torch. You are now the teacher. You need to go and collect for yourself your own students and teach them in all my ways. Now here we have Paul writing this letter to Timothy, and he's passing the torch. You see, in Timothy, I've taught you everything that you need to know about Christ. I'm not going to be here any longer. The torch is yours. So collect for yourself your own students. Teach them in all of Christ's way. My message to you is to not let the flame go out. Don't let your generation be the one that stops passing this torch on It's too important. There's too much at stake here. At the very least, I know that we're not all going to be great teachers. But teach your family. Pass the torch down to them. And you know what one of the best things of teaching is? By example. You can do that. But this torch, this flame, can't let it burn out. There are lives at stake. Finishing strong verse three. And during supper, but suffering along with me, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. An athlete cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. And hard-working farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labor. Think about what I am saying. The Lord will help you understand these things. So what does a soldier have to do with serving Christ? Well, if a soldier gets dropped into a war zone, their commanding officer is going to say, Team may go east around the river. Team B, you're going to go west. We're going to meet at this rendezvous point. This is what you're going to do, and this is what you're going to do. Of those soldiers, how many of them do you think is going to stop off at the local village and have a drink? How many things are going to stop and check their eBay business for 30 minutes? They're not. They're going to be hyper-focused on the mission. They're going to be hyper-focused on the mission because too many lives depend on it for them not to do you know what? A lot of lives that depend on Christ's mission too. And you know what? The stakes are high. It's not just this life. Mm-mm. It's the next life too. It's eternity. So, Paul's saying, listen, don't get tired of these broken things. Focus on the mission of our commanding officer. You guys are going to get a million different opportunities in your lifetime. And that's great. 
be comparing those opportunities to the mission that is Christ. If you have the opportunity to start your own business, I mean, that's great. But is your business going to be tied up in Christ? Or are you going to be tied up in the business? I think Christian families have a big opportunity to come up with a mission, a plan for their family, a plan for how they're going to each day, each week, each month, each year, continue to drive this mission. I think it's one of our biggest opportunities as Christians. Rather than have your family just blowing like a leaf in the wind, set their eyes on the target. What is that target? To learn about Jesus and to spread the gospel about Jesus. It's said that companies that have a business plan have a 152% higher chance of taking off as a student. A 30% faster growth rate. So just imagine if you had a plan for your family, wouldn't your odds of success and finishing strong in the work of Christ be 152% ready? So focus on the mission and have a, a mission, have a plan. Next it says be like the athlete. In order for an athlete to receive this reward, he has to follow the rules. This one's a little bit more kind of face value, right? If the boxer knocks somebody out with an illegal headbutt, not going to count. They're not going to get the reward. If an Olympic swimmer wins the gold, but they find out he's using steroids, he's going to lose his reward, right? I want to be clear now. We're talking about reward, not our salvation. Remember, our salvation can't be earned. It is the undeserved, unearned favor of God. That was Christ's work on the cross. He bore all of our sins. He died for us, not us. We cannot take away salvation. And it's not something that's rewarded for. It's given. What we're talking about here are rewards. Now, there's typically two different types of rewards you can expect. Earthly rewards and heavenly rewards. Christ gives us some good examples of this as well. Let's take a look. Matthew 6, 5 through 6. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, this is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. I wonder, which reward is more important to you? Is it the heavenly one or the earthly one? Jesus continues then in six, Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. When you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, then... No one will notice that you're fasting, except your father, who knows what you do in private. And your father, who sees everything, will reward you. Tithing is the same thing, right? Scotty did a great job talking about that last week. Between you and God. 
flashing your water money around for all to see as you walk back there to make your offering, then you have received your reward. But if your left hand does not know what your right hand is doing, then your reward is in heaven. Store it up for eternity. Jesus had something to say about this too. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroy them or where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy. And thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desire of your heart will also be. Is your heart focused on worldly things or heavenly things? Finally, it says, be like the farmer. The farmer is very different than the soldier and the athlete. The soldier receives a high honor. The athlete is always in the spotlight. But a farmer labors day in, day out, night and day, working the hard ground. And he gets no credit. So Paul's saying, what? You could wind up just like me. You could lose it all. You wind up all alone. The church is abandoning you. You're sitting in a dark room and you're going to lose your life. But the thing is, Paul gets it. Paul knows where he's been storing his faith. He's put his faith in Christ. And so he doesn't feel like he lost anything but getting to everything. He is a man who certainly stored his treasures in heaven. We'll finish up here now in this evening in verse 7. Think about what I am saying. The Lord will help you understand all these things. I think it's easy to overlook this verse. So Paul is encouraging Timothy to not just read, but to actually meditate on what he's saying. He wants Timothy to truly and deeply understand the message. You know, in mixed martial arts, they'll teach you it's better to know one move incredibly well than five pieces. And really, it makes sense, right? If I know one move at 100% versus five moves at 80%, which one's the stronger way to go? If you know, if you know the Lord's Word only at 80%, then isn't there 20% chance of failure? Does that mean there's 20% chance of defeat? You see, what happens is, we get in this habit of reading our Bible. We've set ourselves a goal. I'm going to knock out five chapters tonight. So you're reading along, and you come across this word or this passage you don't quite understand. But what do you do? I've got to get these five chapters knocked out. So you brush past it and you keep moving on. But I wonder, of those five chapters, how much of it did you understand? Was it 80%? Wouldn't that mean that there's a 20% chance of defeat? Doesn't that leave you vulnerable? What I'm encouraging you to do is whatever you, your, your routine is for studying the Word, is to reconsider how you're doing Maybe skip the five chapters. Read one or two verses and study nonstop, day in and day out. Meditate on it. Truly know those verses so well that they empower you. 
you were 100% and not just eight. Some of you are just now seeking Christ. Some of you maybe just recently been baptized. Somebody, some of you might be walking with Christ for a few years now. And some of you, for many years. But this message, this message that Paul is delivering, it speaks to all of you guys. It speaks to all of us. Let's finish this thing strong. Let's finish strong in the work that Christ has given us. You don't understand the saving grace of Jesus Christ. If this has been a hiccup for you, I encourage you, that be what you study. Of all things, study and study it day in and day out and meditate upon it. Really, truly commit the saving grace of Jesus Christ in your heart. There's such power in it. He completes us and He makes us whole. And don't we all just sometimes walk away, walk around feeling empty? Don't we feel like failure? But the work Christ did on the cross, He completes us. He makes us whole. Keep focused on the mission. Throw your treasures up in heaven, not on earth. Don't do the work for your treasure. Do it for God's glory. Do it for the glory of Christ. Remember, a single verse learned at 100% is far more valuable than five learned at 80%. Learn about Christ so that you can then teach about Christ. There's too much at stake. Let's keep the torch going. Let's keep it burning. God, we're just so thankful that we're not living in time like in Rome, or where we can freely walk the streets, where we can freely spread your good news without fear, things like crucifixion and burned alive. So, if there's anyone here that doesn't quite get this place, maybe they just need a reminder. I just ask that you would just fill in the gaps for them, Lord. Lord, where they fail to understand, complete the work that they did, find their grace and truly understand. Lord, help us to be a mission type. Lord, we just want to please you, our commanding officer. We look forward to that day, Lord, until it's well done, good and good. Jesus, you